0: If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Carran. That's what, everybody, we are back, and this is episode
1: 220. 220. Fun to say. What to expect from your first job as a junior developers so mike is going to dive into all the things that you should be or you should be expecting i was gonna say you should be doing but you should be expecting which include onboarding di- the difference between you doing your portfolio projects or otherwise your solo projects versus getting into a tech job and much much more so this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show you can go check us out on that patreon leave a review or rating on your podcast app join us in our discord server or share this with your friends now mike Tell us all about it. What, what should these people expect when they start
2: their first developer job? All right. So I think with this episode, what I really want to do is just set expectations, give you a little bit of insight into what it's like, because it's not so, as straightforward as like a regular, I want. I want to say a regular job, but it's a little bit nuanced. And um, there are certain techniques you can use to Kind of put yourself ahead of other people. Put yourself in a position to succeed in a tech job. The journey up till the point where you get your job is difficult, and you go through a lot of you know ups and downs with your with your interviews. You go through a lot of ups and downs with learning and just being stuck on stuff. When you get into the first job, it's a different kind of difficult. So yes, it's like yes, you made it, but now you have to prove that you can do it. Um, and you know, if you've made it this far, you can definitely do it. I'm not saying that it's something that you can't uh, you can't accomplish because obviously you went through the interview process. You went through all of the sample projects that you built. The job isn't that much different. But having said that, there are a lot of nuances, little things that you'll have to adjust to to succeed in the work environment rather than like a solo project or a freelance environment. And that's what I want to talk about. I also want to kind of give you a day in the life that you could expect, um, and the other really nuanced thing, obviously, is that every company's on, every company's procedure, every company's day is going to be different, right? Obviously, a different company will have a different way of doing their project management. Every company will have a different way of doing their meeting schedules and stuff like that. But overall, I think knowing the structure of someone's day will give you a little bit more insight and a little bit of a step up and into what to expect at least, right? Now, another thing I want to mention is that a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is kind of remote work related in the office. It's a little bit different as well, but again, they do kind of correlate. And uh, yeah, so let's just jump in and talk about onboardings because the first thing that you kind of do when you get to work the first day, the first week, the first month, even sometimes, month is might be a little bit extreme, but in the first few days, especially in the first week, you're going to be onboarded. And especially when you're going through a remote environment, there's a lot of tech that you have to be onboarded to because you have to communicate with everyone. You have to be able to access the code that you're going to be working on. You have to be able to, uh, you know, check what tasks you need to work on. So there's a lot of different company tools that you're going to need access to. So that first day, I guarantee you, is going to be spent, you know, IT giving you access, making sure you have it. A lot of the times it's going to be a little bit of a friction point where like, hey, I have access to this. There's like these SSO plugins for corporations. One's Okta, where you can kind of log into one thing and it'll log you into like 15 other things. (laughs) It can kind of spiral out of control with the authentication process. So just figuring out how to log in and setting up those tools is a task in itself. And usually companies know that. So they're they're going to let you have that time. They're going to let you get acquainted to it. Hopefully there's some documentation. Hopefully IT is there to support you. Next thing here is most likely the next thing you're going to do after you have access and you've communicated with the team a little bit in your Slack, in your email, in your GitHub, JIRA, all that, you're going to be setting up your repos. So depending on the project you're working on, you're going to get access to that code through GitHub or Bitbucket or GitLab or whatever. And you're going to, you know, clone that project locally. And hopefully there's a good readme in there and you're going to start setting up your repo. And this could be something that could take you five minutes and it could be uh, something that can take you three hours or a day, who knows? Because depending on the documentation, depending on the complexity of the project, like do you have to set up the Docker environment? Do you have to set up connections to integrations? Do you have to set up uh, multiple repos and have them communicate together and start one and start the other one separately? Like all of that is a possibility depending on the complexity of the project. And this is something, I'm gonna get into the differences between solo projects and tech jobs, but this is definitely something of a difference between like your own personal project and setting up a repo of an established legacy company with, you know, three years of code that's been written by, you know, 50 different people. There is a huge shift in attitude and huge shift in mindset that you need to be able to kind of set that up and not feel bad about the fact that, first of all, it might take a long time to boot up. Second of all, it might you might not know where everything is at any given time especially when you're starting out. So you need to give yourself time to adapt. And again, a good onboarding process will have that built in where they're going to, they're going to know you're not going to be a productive member the first day or the first two days, because you need to get through this setup process. And maybe they're going to even have a pair programming session with you, with a mentor or a senior developer to help you through that, because it can be very easy. Like I said, five minutes, or it can be kind of a disaster and, and, the more technical debt, the worse it gets.
1: One thing I was actually going to say about all this is that like, just like you were saying how a lot of companies will have an onboarding procedure in which if it's big, they'll have a an appropriate amount of time, a set of, set of days, maybe a week, whatever it is. Um, or if it's a very small uh, set of time, maybe it's just a few hours, but it only takes a few hours. You're signing into, say, your Outlook and then you're Slack or something like that. Um, but I did want to mention that, you know, for anyone listening who is just currently working on their own solo portfolio projects and then in the future uh, will be looking to get hired, uh, that this procedure and many of the things that we, that will be mentioned in this episode happen naturally. This isn't something you need to be jotting down every single thing being like, Oh my God, like Jira. Oh, I forgot about GitHub. I forgot about this and that. A lot of this stuff is pretty uh say natural and pretty standard where they'll literally just have a document that you follow or they'll have a slack bot that walks you through it or there'll be an hr rep there that gives you a package or whatever this isn't a you know there every company has 10 steps every company has 3 steps because i've worked in an, in a place where my spin up time and this is actually not a joke my spin up time was pretty well 4 months Because I was working in a completely fake environment because it was R&D. So it wasn't like I'm going into a company and there's IT handles the mail server and IT handles the servers and IT handles the networking. And, you know, IT handles this, this, this. And then we only deal with the development side. I was working in a completely falsified, intentionally environment because we're testing devices on a fake environment that's supposed to emulate a real environment. We're working at like a mini fake office. It's a lab is what it is. We're basically doing lab experiments just with digital tools, not with chemicals and not with chemistry. So I, it was full on about a three to four month spin up process and you become more productive as you go, obviously. But after the four months, it was sort of like, okay, you can now start taking tickets and start helping people in this and that. Kind of without a lot of supervision, and even then, you still get stuck a lot because you're still a newbie. So I just wanted to mention that because I know some people are going to be freaking out out there or have super anxiety, being like, "Oh my god!" Like Slack, email, GitHub. Okay, what's next? Okay, repos. Oh, I forgot about Docker. Like a lot of that stuff is just going to be a part of the job. You you are you might worry about signing into Outlook, but like given the pers- given the task to sign into Outlook, you're not going to worry if you will. So you know, don't worry about hitting all the check marks this is this is more more or less and like mike can correct me but this is more or less so that you're prepared for an onboarding procedure and then it'll be natural once you get there and you'll be like oh yeah like email okay easy enough oh yeah slack okay github oh yeah sure i know git it'll be more natural than you think at least in my experience
2: yeah exactly and again it's gonna vary from company to company and it's gonna vary your level of like where you are in your career. So if you're a senior developer, there's going to be a little bit of a different expectation for a junior developer than a junior developer. So most likely, again, speaking to the junior developer audience, it's going to be a very handheld procedure. Very much like Matt's saying, there's going to be documentation. There's going to be a spin-up time where there's not going to be much expected of you other than the fact that you're learning and you're kind of asking questions and you're failing. Like All of that is built in because... That's part of the job. Like, there's, I know there's some companies out there that expect you to hit the ground running and start sprinting right away. I hope you don't land there. If you do, then you have to just adapt, I guess. But in the, for the most part, if you're working for a larger tech company uh, and you're coming in, or if you're working for a startup that knows how to hire properly, it's going to have this worked out. Like, this is going to be a worked out procedure. It's nothing to kind of stress about. This is part of how you. How you create a good environment for an employee to be successful as fast as possible by allowing them to slowly build up to that. Right? I actually like to point something else out there too, though,
1: is like if you're saying, like, you know, you need to adapt to the company's pace, sure. But I, I like, I've mentioned this before is like someone in college gave me the advice if it's bullshit in the beginning, it's going to be bullshit later on. Now, that, as with everything in life, there's exceptions to that rule, of course. So maybe their internal onboarding procedure is horrible, but the whole company, the rest of it's fine. That's fine. But don't feel like you're stuck there. Maybe you're stuck there because you need to pay your bills or whatever, but know that you can go get another job. If you're working there and it's BS all the way from onboarding through your day-to-day stuff, just think to yourself, okay, I can work to get out of here. Don't feel trapped.
2: That's a great. That's a great point, and that's a great mindset to have if you're in that situation. Like you, you got the first thing done. You got the job. After that, it becomes easier, right? In terms of getting another job. So just you know, push your way through it as much as you can, and you can level up to go to a different position if you don't like where you're currently at. Totally possible, but. Having said that, again, so you set up your repos. Uh, next thing or part of the process will be to have a, a, a meeting, a one-on-one with like a team lead or a manager. And here's where you can ask a bunch of questions, especially with the onboarding process. You can ask a bunch of questions in terms of where, where the code base is heading, the longevity of the projects, and stuff like that, and what you're going to be working on. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth here. Uh, this is, again... These one-on-ones are really useful, especially in a remote environment, uh, where you can set get your expectations set as well. Like, hey, my first week, what do you expect? My second week, what do you expect? Sometimes you ask these questions in an interview process as well, but in general, if you haven't, then this is a good place to do it, and uh, you know, set your benchmarks, and then you understand where they're at. Then you understand what you need to do to accomplish them, and again. A lot of the times those benchmarks are going to be pretty low when you're starting out because the, depending on the complexity of the code, it's going to take you some time to ramp up no matter what. In our current, in the current uh, environment that I'm working right now, the ramp up time is probably in the two month to three month range as well. Like Matt was saying, now you're going to get tickets before that, but those tickets are very deliberately going to be intentionally made to ramp you up. So whatever ticket you're going to be given, it's going to be very intentionally like, hey, this is something that could teach them this part of the code. And this is something that could teach them this part of the code. But in terms of like, hey, I'm going to be a general purpose programmer on this project, that's like a two to three month ramp up. Uh, and it gets – as projects get more complex, the ramp up gets h- higher and higher and higher. So it's okay to take that time. After that, uh, you're probably going to be told to read and update documentation. This is a very common first task, first uh, potential pull request, even something like that. Because a great way to determine if your onboarding process is right is if the person can go through the documentation, spin up the project and have everything go well and smooth. And the chances of that happening are usually pretty slim because everyone interprets stuff differently. So a great thing to do for a manager is to get hey can you go through the documentation make sure that you can ramp yourself up if there's any any questions ask them and then update the documentation right so that allows you allows the person to go through the code to go through the documentation to start you know setting up the project locally on their machine and to make sure that the documentation is updated It's not the most glamorous of tasks, but it's a very useful one. So don't think that, hey, they're just getting busy work. No, this is work that's very important to the team. So treat it like like that as well. Next thing here would be to solve your first issue and submit your first pull request. This might happen fairly quickly in the process. I know I like to get people going on their first pull request fairly quickly. Again, it's going to be a very intentionally designed task to get you started with the code. And just to clarify, pull request, what I mean by that is essentially in Git when you create a branch, for instance, to work on a feature, if you want to get that branch merged back in and combined into dev, you create something called a pull request and a pull request is usually designed for a code review so that someone can, a manager or a, like a team lead or another developer on the team can go in and make sure that your structure is correct. They can pull down your repo and run it locally to make sure everything is running correctly, give you comments and feedback. And then if everything goes well, they can accept it and merge it into dev or master or main, or however you guys, however you manage your repository. And yeah, so that's going to be kind of your onboarding, your ramp up in the company. Uh, and I'm sure as you're going through there, you're probably going to end up hitting your first stand up. So a stand up meeting is a it's either a daily or like a couple of times a week. However, the company does it. It's a meeting where you kind of get together with, uh, with the development team and you discuss your tasks. So usually it's like, what ha- what are you working on now? Is there anything blocking you? Is there anything stopping you from achieving, from accomplishing those tasks? That can be anything from, hey, I'm just waiting on uh, designs from my designer, or I, I need to talk to this company to integrate with, or I'm waiting for this other developer to finish their project, right? Anything that's blocking you. And then uh, what what are you gonna be working on next once you finish those tasks? So it's, it's usually a quick meeting, 15 to 30 minutes, hopefully. And uh, it's a way to make sure that everyone's kind of on track and no one is blocked. It is in an async work environment or in a remote environment, a lot of times stand-ups can be done uh through text. And I kind of prefer it that way. I still prefer meetings sometimes, like once a week or something like that. But through text, you can kind of achieve all of this just, you know, typing out the tasks that you're working on and what needs to be done. And then you have a historical record as well, which is kind of convenient to follow and be like, Okay, this person's working on this, this is what's blocked, rather than a visual one. But depending on how the company handles it.
1: I had a question here, actually. So I know we mentioned like setting up your your company tools, like your Slack and all that, getting your repos in there, having your one-on-one with your manager, reading up the documentation, all that, and then solve your first issue. But how do you get your set of tasks so that you could solve your first issue and be able to participate in that first standup as well? Where do the tasks come from? Where should you expect that as a, is that from your one-on-one with your manager slash your team lead or what is that? Like, where do those come from?
2: Good question. I think it can come from many different places. It can come from the stand up. Uh, It can come from the uh, sprint planning meeting. A lot of times tasks will be split up. So a sprint plan, if you have a one week sprint or a two week sprint will happen once a week or once every two weeks where you kind of go through the backlog, choose what you're going to be doing for the sprint and you assign it to people. To do that, uh, to that task. Now, if you joined in the middle of the week or something, you'll probably be assigned a task one-on-one with your manager or during a stand-up. Be like, "Hey, this is a perfect task for you to just kind of get yourself familiar with the code. Can you please take a look at it? Ask a million, a million questions, please. Like that's usually how I handle it. Ask as many questions as possible, and then the manager should also check in with you during the day, not to see where you're at with the task, but to make sure that you're not afraid to ask a question.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, there's, there's many different ways that can come in. Um There's automated processes. I, I mean, like you can have, you know, there, if you're, if you have Jira, you can just get tasks assigned to you automated in an automated way. And in an async work environment, that happens a lot where you just have like a manager assigned tasks and no one even talks to each other. And that's fine for someone that is, oh, Is okay with the code base and is uh, like, you know, a seasoned developer in the code base. In my opinion, that's not a great way to start off for a new junior developer. So, because it depends on what they're touching, right?
1: It's like, imagine being given something that touches the database and the front end and maybe even the server in some capacity. Be like, holy, like (laughs) I'm touching three expertise worth of stuff for this first task. Like, that's not
2: good. Yeah, exactly. And like, Even contextually, like, let's say you're giving a really easy task that only touches one of those things. Having no one to have told you about that task to give you background on why you're doing it is intimidating in my, at least in my opinion. Again, maybe there's junior developers out there that can hit the ground running and just go in and go into the code base without having any conversations, but I think it is important when you're onboarding someone that you have those times where you you can meet with them in person on on zoom or whatever and describe the tasks that you're going to be giving them initially after that once they get the ball rolling it's okay async it works right but at least in the onboarding process i highly recommend having a little bit of a personal touch on it okay so yeah that's usually the onboarding process i probably missed a bunch of things as well but that's kind of how i see it um Let's go into the next segment here, which is differences between your solo projects. So you like your sample projects that you worked on and the actual job, right? So there's a lot of these. Uh, but the first and probably biggest difference would be meetings. So on your solo projects, you're meeting with yourself. Uh, if it's a freelance project, you're meeting with a client every once in a while in a tech job, meetings become part of your routine. Now there's like this, you know, anti meeting stuff going on right now. And that's good because meetings were getting over at a hand and they still kind of are. But the reality is if you have a business portion of the company and marketing portion of the company and a tech portion of the company, they need to somehow communicate in a way that makes for a good product together. Right? So, A lot of times there will be something in the middle there where there will be like tech leads and uh, engineering managers that will handle a lot of that communication between business and marketing, but they're going to need to pass that down effectively to you to be able to complete your tasks because you need to know a bigger picture of what you're working on, right? So that's where these meetings come in. You'll be assigned to a stand-up, like I was saying, that's a meeting. You'll be assigned to sprint retrospectives, so all the scrum stuff, you'll be assigned to the basic project management meetings, but you're also probably going to be assigned to like, Hey, we're optimizing the site speed and we need the marketing person. We need the design person in here and we need this. So you might, you might be there with like a few different types of employees where you're going to need to discuss. Hey, from a development perspective, I can, you know, um, make sure that we load we load less JavaScript here. And from a marketing perspective, we can have less analytics here. From a design perspective, we can make images smaller here or less images on this page. So you need multiple different aspects of a company to be able to make some decisions and to be able to move a project forward. And that's where these meetings kind of come in. That's where these task forces come in. That's where these uh, stuff like that. So you are going to have those meetings Just be prepared for them. It's nothing special. It's very typical to how you would have like a project meeting in school, right? Uh, Nothing nothing too crazy. Just expect that you're not just going to be sitting at your desk working on code all the time.
1: Well, the thing with all this too, the anti-meeting thing is that there does come a point where a lot of the non-coding part of the company, if you do have those two separate segments of the company that Mike had already mentioned, they primarily – kind of function on really communication and meetings like they're that's their way of communicating that's their way of going through things and they are constantly brainstorming and this and that and then the technical side and then some other stuff too like the graphical design and stuff like that that's where say the actual the actual like quote unquote work is being done and they're playing like a support role so like you're making the app and then they're marketing the app so they got to know where it's at this and that so there's you're working cooperatively, but there is um, a line of contention, if you will, where they are meeting happy because that's literally what they're supposed to be doing. And then they're trying to go into a comp- into a section of the company in which it's not meeting happy. And so this is why there's this anti-meeting thing, because imagine being given a ticket, you have three days left, and then you wake up, you're in meetings from 8 to 4, and then it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm working from 4 to 11, unpaid effectively – assuming you're only paid for eight hours. I guess I'm working from four to 11 on my code only to then wake up again to go have a meeting at 8am. And this is to the, the, these are more or less horror stories, but these are things that happen. We always, we've discussed uh, productivity in the past and deep work hours and all this type of stuff. But having like having, let's say a meeting and then two hours and then another meeting, you're not really probably going to get too much done in those two hours There's no like deep work section. There's no there's no time to really focus on it. And I'm not one to necessarily subscribe a lot to like, oh, I need my two deep work hours and this. And I don't manage it that much. But it is something that happens naturally where there are times where say a deadline's coming up and I'm like, okay, I need this done. And then I just sit down and I just, you know, bang it out. But if I was constantly called all the time during that, really what it is is deep work period. If I was constantly called during that, or if I even had a call coming up really soon within a few hours couple hours my my brain's half in my my work and then half into the meeting thinking okay i gotta make sure i'm there i gotta have a drink ready i gotta be you know whatever races through your your head and so this is why this anti-meeting thing is happening um so hopefully you don't get into a company that (laughs) is meeting heavy meeting happy but um We'll see what happens. It's, I, I would say the anti-meeting thing is in the same stage roughly as the four-day work week, where the four-day work week is starting to sort of take off. The anti-meeting stuff is starting to take off. Maybe it's a little more ahead because meetings have been around for a long time now. But, um, yeah, just, the, I guess my, my whole point with this is just, you know, you're going to enter into one culture or the other or one in the middle where they have maybe sometimes a little bit too much meetings, but sometimes not, not that much, but just, don't get mad necessarily at the other department is, I guess, my ultimate thing, because it is a line of contention. They need to know what's going on and you don't want to tell them. <laughs> so just, you know, that sometimes you got to ignore ignore them for a little bit and do your deep work. Like, I'll, I'll just shut my phone off and I'll just – that's it. And I'll do my deep work. And even if I miss some sort of critical ticket, it's like, yeah, but I'm still coming out at the end of the day with my task done. I I, felt, I built my whole footer like I was told to. And I'm, and I'm coming out with, with a result. I'm not sitting there being like, oh, that needs to be checked. Oh, oh, I gotta do that. Oh, oh, the header now. Oh, like, hang on. Oh, this person needs help. Oh, wait, we need to schedule a meeting. Wait, oh, someone needs to reschedule a meeting. Like, it's too much all over the, all over the place. So it is a contention point from both sides of the fence. So just remember that you're trying to work cooperatively and try to be civil, but with, with the, even though it is a a point of contention.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, A big tip that I have for this kind of stuff is everyone kind of looks at your calendar, especially business people. Trust me on this. Your calendar is like the most important part of a business-minded person's um, connection with you. Because when they go to make these meetings, they'll use something like Google Calendar or Microsoft Office, whatever, which have the ability to see – what your calendar is looking like so when they look at the when they when they add you to the meeting you can see all your meetings that day so if you have if you need to get that footer done like matt is talking about and that's part of your job that that is your job you're a developer then you have to block off that time on the calendar right block off three hours so that someone from the business side knows hey i can't book them in this time because they're going to be working that's a very typical way to handle that situation, Matt, um, whether the business side will respect it or not is a question, but a lot of times that is a really a really important thing, a really important separation to make to actually get some productivity done because your time costs a lot of money and companies know that. So they try to limit meetings, but if you have 15 different departments, that communication starts to kind of overlap all the time and it just becomes a disaster.
1: Well, the thing is too, is they could be doing standups of their own, whether or not they're on the, was it the scrum system or not? Those other departments or something similar, but they could be having a standup or an equivalent to a standup and you might be their blocker. Yes. You, they might say, Hey, I, you know, I've done my poster, uh, that we're going to be posting on some sort of Facebook ad, but I need this developer to tell me how far he is along so I can push, like put out a date. Like, are we Q1? Q2? When's our deliverable? And. You could be their blocker, and so you kind of think about it in that way, where like they're going to be bugging you, but you're trying to you're trying to get the work done. You know, it is a bit of uh, it is a bit of push and pull. But you're 100 percent right in that work or the uh, like. Time is money when you're at work, absolutely. And so you know there there is a
2: there is a happy balance, but it's hard to strike it. It's hard to get it right. Yep, and it's never going to be perfect. So just accept accept that and kind of you know adapt, like Matt said. Okay. So next thing here, uh, the differences is code reviews. Obviously, if you're working on a solo project, you're not going to have too many eyes on your code. So you can write whatever the heck you want. It works great in a company. A lot of times there will be people looking at your code to make sure that it conforms to the company's guide, to the company's coding style, to the company's linting process, to the company's, to the company's way of doing certain things. Now it might be rigid. It might be loose. There's many different variations in between, right? So sometimes they, sometimes they don't care. They'll just take a look to make sure that you're not breaking anything and move it along. And other times they'll be extremely rigid and say that you have to use arrow functions instead of regular function calls. And that's it. Like no in between. You have to do that. This is where you need to learn the system. You can't, as a junior developer, come in and change the entire, you know, structure of a code. It's just, it's not going to work. You can suggest things. There's nothing wrong with that. Being like, hey, I learned this kind of style. Do you want to take a look at it? But expect that to get shot down sometimes and move on. So this is a very big difference that you have to adapt to because it is a very – like it's just a shocking thing where like, hey, I wrote this. I, de- I declared this variable one way. It works perfectly fine. But the company declares variables in a different way. And uh, yeah, you, have, like, you might have to change that. So think of it as a way to grow into learning different systems rather than a hindrance to your coding process. I think just shifting that mindset a little bit because having other developers that have more years of experience than you look at your code and come up with ways to efficiently write certain things, like taking your, you know, five if statements and breaking it down into one is a very huge way to level up your coding skills. And you should use that to the most of your the biggest advantage because when you're, when you're learning, I know it's great that, hey, no one's like, you know critiquing me, but really you want that critiquing. And if you want a mentorship program, sometimes you have to pay a lot of money for that. Well, it's built into a job a lot of the time. So take advantage of it. Next thing here is legacy code. This is a big one and something that will take some time to adapt to. But usually when you're coming into a, a project, if you're not being thrown onto a completely new project, you're going to be dealing with legacy code. And this could be, you know, just old code that was written three years ago. This could be a small package that was written over here for like th- three years ago to connect with some database because could be your entire project was written, you know, two years ago by a completely different team and you have to adapt to it. Reading code, figuring out what's going on in code, debugging code, this is going to become a very big part of your job. That's the reality of it. Sometimes it's not fun because all of a sudden, you know, you were used to react with um, hooks, but these, this company hasn't updated to hooks. They're still using class classes and they have, they can't update their react package because of some other package, some other dependency that relies on the old pack. Like it just becomes a mess a lot of the times. And yes, they're always going to say like, oh, we're looking at updating it. We're all looking at updating it, but don't rely on that. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to learn the older system. You're going to have to learn how it works. The best way to do that is to just read the code that's already been written and adapt to it. So just like if you're building a footer, there's probably already a footer before. See how it was built and take that and like put in your own styling, whatever you have to do to that footer and build it out with the same kind of structure. It's not that it's really difficult. It's just the mindset shift from, hey, I get to write whatever I want to having to stick to kind of older technologies or stuff that's kind of a little bit janky. It gets a little bit annoying and you're gonna complain about it and that's fine. But on the other hand, like you gotta do it. You gotta get through it and you have to, you have to be able to contribute even to a legacy project. Next thing here is integrations. Another big one. A lot of times, again, you're building your solo project. You might, you might have a database that you built yourself. You might have like an author authorization system in the back end that you built, something like that. But at the end of the day, you're probably not going to have a massive CRM that needs to, you know, track all your information, all your orders. You're not going to have 10 different analytics platforms that the business, the CEOs, the VPs, the, the, you know, 15 different departments need to track. You're not going to have the inventory management systems. You're not going to have the internal, tool, internal tools for internal authentication. Like there's just integrations become a very big blocker for a lot of things and probably one of your biggest challenges as you start kind of ramping up in the code base. Because when someone comes and says, hey, we need this feature, I need you to ha- have this button pressed so that we can navigate to this page. It's not just, hey, I'm just going to put a link here. No, well, every time you someone clicks on it, we need you know this tracker to be there. We need this tracker to be there. Well, now it's slow. Why is it slow? Well, you have 15 trackers on it. Well, that's not my problem. Like You have to kind of efficiently load them. And it just goes into this rabbit hole with a button click. And I don't mean to scare anyone about it. I just want to be very clear that part of your job will be to figure out the more complex stuff that you weren't really thinking about in a sample project. And these integrations have that complexity to them because some of them might be old, some of them might be new, just making them work together isn't a whole other, a whole other issue. And when you're looking at a code base that's been worked on for a long time, you're going to just see a bunch of code that just, it's not, it, it, looks, it looks out of place. And a lot of that is like an adapter to an integration or a old piece of legacy code that makes it so that you can communicate with this old database like a a mainframe or something like that like some crazy stuff so that's where that kind of technical debt comes in and that's where a lot of the complexity in a seemingly simple project can lead you down rabbit holes to kind of build out very complex systems
1: i actually want to mention something here where if you think about this as a as a single task, and we mentioned this before, taking a large task, breaking it down. If we think about this as like a, a one task, where sure it's one button click, there's your task. But Mike said, you know, there's four trackers on it for whatever reason. It's anxiety inducing and it's it's worrying because you're you, you didn't think about this when your solo projects, you didn't do this in your portfolio projects, and you're thinking like, oh my god, what do I do? Because at least to me, the very first thing that my mind goes to is, I need to do this. I'm on the clock. I need to do this right now. What do I do? I don't know how to do it. But the thing is, is if you break this down into the separate tasks, and this is key for me, approach it from the mindset of if I were doing this in my project, I wouldn't be worried about it. I would just go and beat it up. I would just beat that task up. I'd figure out how to do it. Hit my head off the wall a couple of times, figuratively, and I would just try to figure this out. Throw the book at it. You know, try all the solutions, this and that, and. If you do that approach on a small task and you, and you finish it, then you go to the next small task, the next small task, the next small task, and now your button just works. To me, anyway, that's a way easier way for me to personally approach it rather than sitting there mind racing, freaking out. Oh my God. Like, I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. You know, this isn't a test at school where you can't refer to things. If you were told, Tomorrow, that you had to, you know, change, like, all, you and only you <laughs> can have to change the roof on your house. I mean, yeah, it's gonna be a little anxiety inducing, but you're gonna be able to, like, look things up and do whatever, and then you're gonna attack it, and you're gonna do it. It might not be amazing, but you're gonna attack it, try it, and see what happens. The big thing with a lot of web development stuff is a lot of the stuff, not everything, but a lot of the stuff is obviously working or obviously not. If you have a button that is supposed to send a signal to Google Tags, that, that Google Tag Manager, and all it does is track how many times this thing was clicked, and you click on that button, and it does work, it does send the Google Tag Manager, but it doesn't send the user to the page they clicked on, that's super obvious. Same with the other side. If you click it and the user does get to the next page, but it doesn't trigger Google Tag Manager, it doesn't track that click, super obvious. So – you know, this isn't like some really complex thing where it's like, what are the side effects of this? Sure. Some big code bases, you're going to have some weird side effects down the road or whatever, whatever, like what have you. But in general, if you approach these problems in the standard, take the big task, break it into small ones, but then just think of it as, I'm just going to tackle this task. Because all you at the end of the day can do is just do what you do, what you normally would do. I mean, if you can't solve it, I mean, you can't solve it. Like what's, what's going to happen to you? You know, and chances are, if, like, if you were doing a, or when you were doing your uh, personal solo projects, chances are you had a bunch of things that you did not know how to do, but you really wanted a slider in this particular location, but you did not know how that slider worked, or you wanted to, you wanted a slider and you wanted uh, to make it yourself. You didn't want to use any plugins or anything, and you went in and you just did it. And so if you approach it with that sort of mindset of, this is just a task I need to do, I'm just going to try to go and figure it out. Rather than, oh, my God, I'm at work. I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? Help. <laughs> I think, like, that'll help a lot. And also, one other thing as well is, um so we used to have at work, we used to have a uh, database architects. Uh, I'm sure I annoyed them, but oh, well. Uh, if I had database problems, I went and I talked to the database architects <laughs> because that was their job. And I would spend two weeks trying to figure out what some value was or why some value was corrupt or that weird string is that corrupt or is that some sort of id number like i don't know sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it isn't so i just go talk to them yeah sure maybe they got annoyed with me here and there you know i wouldn't go there every day and every or every five minutes certainly not uh, and i would try to gather a few questions and go ask but um that's what i would do as i would just go to the database architect and be like hey i don't know like i'm bumping up against your expertise uh help <laughs> So um you know if if possible use that as well as a, as a help for for your own sanity because there's a reason why there's database architects or there's a reason why there's sysadmins or whatever because you're all working together and sometimes you step over the line and you're oh my god I got to set up the server what do I do well Maybe you're not supposed to be doing that and you're overthinking the problem, or maybe you are supposed to be doing that, but it's really simple, the change that you need to do, and you're overthinking it's not your expertise, and that guy knows the answer right away. So just a couple of pointers uh, for stuff when you're given things that are completely new to you, stuff that you've
2: never considered even in your solo projects. 100%. And yeah, asking questions is a huge, huge part of what you're going to be doing when you first start out, and even... Further down the line, because as you get into more complex tasks, you're going to have more complex questions. Always, don't hesitate to ask. Make sure that you're not repeating questions too often, but don't hesitate to go out there and ask a question. That's really important. It's, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit in the tips and uh, why that's important, but really like ask questions, hundred percent. Next thing here, testing. So maybe you did some testing in your solo projects just for getting the experience with it. I know a lot of people recommend you to do that. But for me, myself, like I almost never write tests for my, you know, sample apps or something like that, or my portfolio projects, um, because it's just not that important. But in a large, massive, like tech, um, in a company where you have stuff going to de- deploying stuff where customers will be accessing it, you know, thousands of customers, potentially millions of customers. And when you deploy it, you need to know that, hey, this workflow works and you don't have a thousand QA engineers going through and hammering your site. You need to write tests. That's just the reality of it. Um, depending on what company, depending on what project, it's going to be different amounts of tests, whether you need to do unit tests and end-to-end tests. That's a question depending on what kind of company you're at, but know that you're probably going to be writing some tests. And usually if it's a integrated feature I'm going to say if it's a feature relating to payment or checkout or anything to do with like e-commerce, let's say, you're going to be spending just as much time as you are coding the feature as you do writing the test for it. It's almost a 50-50 split. So don't be afraid that that's, it's taking a long time to write the test because it's intentionally taking a long time. That's, it's just complicated. That's just the reality of it. It's okay. It should be built in. If they want tests written, they're going to have to pay for tests being written. That's kind of how I put it. And uh, yeah, it's not super complicated. It's not hard, like it's not hard to do. It's more time consuming than anything. But it is important for the code base to be able to be tested on like a deployment uh, and be able to be tested on perform for performance optimizations and stuff like that. So just accept that this is go- probably going to be part of your job.
1: I had a, I had a question. So my, all my testing in the past, I mean, sure to be obviously testing people's websites out, but all my testing in sort of, I guess, this level that we're talking at, uh, this level of corporation were hardware tests, like testing like phones or testing, you know, whatever modems or whatever. So what do you mean by testing in this instance? So you're saying writing tests. So to me, that means literally going into Microsoft Word and writing in like, we need a test case in which uh, the user goes here, clicks this button, goes here, backs out three times, changes the quantity. You know, we need tests that are really straightforward. Can the user add quantity? Sure. But then we need another test that's really crazy. Like the user keeps adding and removing quantity and we need to make sure the system adapts to that. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean literally programming in like a, a bot or
2: something yes. to do the test? Like what do you mean? Yeah. So both. Uh, so programming in a bot to do the test. Okay. So an an N10 test for example, let's say you have an e-commerce site. Uh an N10 test would do this. It would load the, load a page, so you, that's part of the bot process, then on the page try to detect something that you, should be there, like the, you know, the title of one of your products. Then you would use that title to find the add to cart button. The bot would press the button Then it would open the side cart, right, automatically. And then the bot would click the checkout button, then go to the checkout page, then fill in the checkout information, then hit the place order button and see what happens. And it would be at at every step, it would be detecting something on the page that should be there. And that would be the checkmark. So is the price correct? And you, you would compare it manually. So you would type in the price that you expect into the test, the bot. And if it doesn't correlate, then the test would fail and it would send you a notification. They also sent like create screenshots. They also create videos. Like these tests are very sophisticated, like, but you have to program them. Right. But it's like, it's almost like a person is going through it. It runs a headless version of Chrome. So like you you just, it like literally spins up a headless version of Chrome in the background and it automatically does all these actions. So there's also something called unit tests, which are a little bit smaller, where you like like literally are detecting, hey, is this component? You're giving the component some information, and is this component displaying the proper information? Those ones are less robots and more just, hey, is this exist? And that's it.
1: Sorry. So a question again then. So you're saying it opens up this, this headless version of Chrome. Are you using like a plugin to create specific tests? Are these called like, I don't know, Bill's test or, or something? Like what is, like, what is this? Is this like, like you're, like, when you were first talking, I thought like, you know, you would go into, you know, how like you, you validate a form, you're effectively checking the, the form to see if the user has entered the right thing. You could take the same kind of idea and check to make sure that. Like give the robot or give the JavaScript and say the total should be $13 bang on. And then it, and if it isn't, then give me a, you know, a console log and says, Hey, they, the total is actually 1260. That's bad or whatever. Um, is that what you're doing? Are you actually using like a specific plugin for some sort of framework? That's a, that's a bot for
2: testing. Yeah. Specific plugin, plugins like Cypress, Playwright, Mocha, Jest, all of those plugins, all those random words that I just said. They're all just plugins for testing different things okay yeah they do all that for you like they they're the ones that create the headless uh, instance of Chrome they're the ones that run through everything you write in essentially their syntax as well so they have their own kind of JavaScript programming syntax like it's not it's you're not learning a whole new language but you need to know like how how their HTML structure works and stuff like that like how do they crawl the HTML how do they get it but it's all documented obviously again it's not hard it's just tedious really at the end right. of the day because you have to go in and write all these manually like you have to write like what it took what it needs to expect sometimes you have to give it an entire like fake api to pull to push in so like it needs to check if your if your component your headless component can interact with you know stripe or it can inter- paypal or whatever you have to make like a fake paypal api payload and put it in there so again it's annoying <laughs> and tedious but yes there are tons of tools out there to help you do that it's just part of the process on a personal note
1: i don't i don't code at this level and every time we talk about this there's a new big thing and it pushes me further and further away (laughs) like i had no idea this existed now there's a whole new syntax a whole new thing you got to do like great
2: it's it's one of those things you got to do but it's built into like part of the process. Like I don't it's not you have to learn this whole platform or whatever. It's nothing I don't know. It's So like like if I if I don't know it
1: do, will I know it tomorrow? If I started studying right now, I know I'll know it tomorrow. Or like how yeah, complex? I think, is this? I think
2: at a basic level you would be able to write a test tomorrow without too much of an issue. Yes. Interesting. It's not that hard. Like it's not it's honestly not that hard. Obviously the more complex your project is, the more complex your tests have to be, but To just to make a basic test to test like how a button works is not like yeah you could do that tomorrow no problem i would like to know
1: why we have never heard of this before or like i have never heard of this before i've heard of all the different parts of react and this and that shadow doms and every other thing and like i don't code in react but it's like i've heard all about all these different parts and this is the first time i'm ever hearing about this like how did something this seemingly large slip through the cracks And, and the reason why i'm asking this is for my own understanding but also uh, are the people doing solo projects even aware
2: of this well like if you're not aware of it there i'm sure there's tons of people that aren't aware of it either so a good it's good that we brought it up it's good that you dove in uh why you haven't heard of it is because you just have not needed it sure like you have but, yeah that's i mean it. i haven't
1: needed a shadow dom like, <laughs> you, know, either.
2: you don't hear about it well like that again most of the stuff that we talk about I go through and only look into when I need it. Like, I don't do testing on my personal projects. I know some people will hate me for that or whatever. I don't care. But, like, I don't do testing on my personal projects. But for a corporation, again, as soon as you're talking, hey, one day of being out of service is X amount of dollars, that's where testing comes in. That's where you need that overhead. Okay? So, like, that's why you haven't done it. Like, that's why you haven't heard about it. You haven't needed it. That's it's, it. That's still wild. Like it, it's, it's such a, it's such a like, I
1: always like to be proactive and it's such a reactive way of thinking that I, like maybe I, I need to do that, but it's still, it's still wild. Like to me that I've never heard of this. Like I know what testing is. Obviously I test the websites I put together and do like test purchases and stuff, but I'm also making like WordPress sites and, and stuff like that for people.
2: Yeah, there's there's also different testing methodologies and stuff like that. I don't know everything about it. I'm not that good at it. I'll be frank, frank with that. Like I'm not a good test writer, um, but I do do it and uh, it's nothing special. Like there's nothing special about it. It's not like learning a new framework or anything like that. It's a little bit simpler than that. And a lot of the times, again, if you're entering into a new project, there probably is going to be a lot of tests already written. So your job will be to read those tests and copy paste a lot of the code from them. And just change out some words. That's most of the time, that's literally all you're doing. Copy, pasting, and changing out a few words. Okay. Next thing here is office politics. Uh, This one is kind of obvious for any job. Like it doesn't have to be a tech job, but this is something you have to adapt to. So if it's your first job in the industry or in any industry, uh, yeah, you're going to have to play some games sometimes. Uh, I'm not talking like games as in, you know, video games or. Other games. I'm talking like, hey, this person's having a bad day or this person's being kind of an asshole or something like that. Maybe I should back off. Maybe I should tell, confront them about it. Uh, this person's reporting me to HR for whatever reason. Now I have to like these kinds of weird social games that you were not play at, obviously, when you're working for, as a freelancer on your own um, that you have to now take into account. You have to take into account who's on your team. How do they react to criticism? How do – How does your boss handle, uh, you know, questions being asked? Like all of this stuff. You can't, you can't just treat everyone exactly the same and expect to have a good relationship with everyone. Sometimes you're going to have some friction and you have to be okay with that. Next thing here is split responsibilities. So this is different. Again, when you have a team of people working on a project, you might have a designer. You might have a UX designer. You might have a, uh, you know, an engineer that focuses solely on integrations, like APIs integrations. You might have a front end d- developer that only does layouts. You might have a front end web developer that only does integration with their CMS or something like that. Like you might, you might be there might be specialties on your team, right? So there's these split responsibilities that get assigned, and we all have to communicate. So if you're if you're working on a component that integrates with the integration engineer, then you need to comp- communicate with the integration engineer. You need to have that. You need to have a process set up between the two of you so that you can provide like the structure of the code and he can then wire up the CMS, for instance, something like that. Um, there's a little bit more nuance to that every team handles it differently. Some teams like to do it more siloed where uh, if you're working on a feature, you have to handle all of the features like uh, code structure including the integration, including the layouts and stuff like that. but depending on who you're working for, what kind of company it is, it might be different. So ideally you want to work on a small team you want to handle as much as possible to learn as much as, as much as you can, but that's not reality for everyone. Okay, uh, next thing that I want to talk about is a day in the life. So I just want to kind of give you a quick overview in what I do on a typical workday. This is not every day, but I just took like yesterday as an example. So usually after waking up uh, and just having like a coffee, I'll check my Slack and emails really quickly, make sure there's nothing urgent, like the site's not down uh, and answer any answer, answer anything that needs to be answered at that time. Then I'll go into JIRA, I'll check my tasks, make sure that no one's tagged me in Jira because in Jira, if you haven't used it yet, you can kind of tag each other in a different tasks. So if someone needs something from you, if someone's blocked, whatever, they might contact you through Jira. They might contact you through Slack. They might contact you through email. So I think the splitting of communication has become a little bit extreme. Um, but hopefully your company doesn't have another task management software like Reich or whatever that you have to also check because I've heard of that happening where you have to be literally checking like five different pieces of software to figure out where someone has contacted you from what. And that can get kind of crazy. But again, that's part of the day, part of the day, part of random jobs. Nothing is ever 100% efficient.
1: Bring on the chat apps. More chat apps. I want more disparity. Even on my personal phone, I'm like, I need to message this person. Where do I message them? Messenger? SMS? RCS? WhatsApp? Where is it? Where are they? Something just dinged? I don't even know what it's from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just like discord zoom where is it more more please i need more notifications more updates and more things that could potentially break
2: papa john's papa john's yeah exactly so (laughs) that's what i mean like it's just it's some teams manage it better than others whatever okay just accept it and move on uh After I check Jira, I'll usually just set up my development environment because while I'm checking Jira, I check which task I'm going to be working on or I just check my notes from the day before. Sometimes I write notes for myself and be like, hey, these are the three tasks that I want to finish in the morning or next day or something like that. I'll set up my development environment for those tasks and then I'll take a break. So I'll kind of step away, maybe do some exercise, go finish my coffee somewhere. I'll just relax for a bit because I like to kind of split up my communication time and my setup time with my deep work time. I think it helps me transition into deep work a little bit faster. And again, finding your routine and finding your the way that you can get to a deep work state or get to a working state faster is going to be key. Uh, a lot of your work is going to de- demand you really to concentrate on code really to get stuff done. So you need to make sure that you can be effective because if you're not, and this happens to me all the time where I have just bad days, then I find myself working till like seven or eight. Um, and it's not like you're my com- the company's forcing me to do that. It's just like my own mental thing where I'm just like, well, I took a bunch of breaks. I couldn't focus here. So I'm just doing this. And it's, it's annoying because again, some companies will not force you or most companies won't force you to do that. But you're, if you're depending if you have the same mental model as me, uh, you might feel bad or something for whatever reason and force yourself to work longer. So it's better to get stuff done as quickly as possible and be able to sign off as quickly as possible rather than just stretching your day with a bunch of nonsense and YouTube videos and whatever. Distractions. So, after I take that break, I will start working. So, depending on my kind of mood, depending on my motivation that day, I'll either hit a deep work task. So, like a complicated task. So, if I'm ready to go and I'm like, okay, I I know how to do this. I know where to go. I'll do that. If I feel like I am I need that motivation, if I feel like I need to get the ball rolling, I'll usually find a smaller task just to get it done and kind of move on from there and let a snowball effect a little bit come in. So, it's not one... It's not one or the other is both like I'll I'll use both depending on the day. Then I'll usually once I finish a task, so usually two to three hours of time, I'll have some breakfast uh, and I I do a late breakfast. So that's why it's later in the day. I'll have some breakfast and then I'll go to the stand up. So stand up meeting for for us right now. It happens three times a week. Uh, So and it's usually around 15, 20 minutes. And we just, you know, give our updates for the day and make sure that no one's blocked. It's very standard stand-up meeting. After the stand-up, usually there's might be some other meetings that happen because sometimes there's a blocker. Usually a blocker will cause another meeting or at least a conversation. Uh, Sometimes you schedule meetings right after your stand-up because you're already in a meeting. So it's better to kind of, you know, group them all together. Like Matt said a little bit earlier, if you have like, Meeting, two hours meeting, that two hours becomes really useless. And that's 100% true. Uh, that for me especially, like I in that two hours, I'll just be thinking about that other meeting or thinking about the meeting before it. So I kind of like to group my meetings together as much as possible. Doesn't work all the time, but whatever. If I don't have any meetings, I'll just go back to coding. Then code for a few hours, lunch, and uh, then some more meetings, right? Or coding. So depending on the day, I'll have... Maybe at most, I'll have three meetings. I really I, like those days kind of suck for me. I really don't like it, but I, it's fairly OK right now. Um, sometimes I'll have days where I have no meetings. Today is one of those days, in fact, where I literally have no stand up, no meetings. I could just work all all day. I did book off time to work, though, <laughs> so that no meetings could be scheduled because I do have a feature that needs to be done for tomorrow. And uh, when someone contacts me, why I have it booked off? That doesn't happen very often. But if someone does, that's my explanation. It's not a big deal. Uh, and I usually end the day with Jira, so I'll open up Slack and Jira, make sure that all the questions that I have that have been asked me are answered. Any questions that I need to for tomorrow, I'll ask, and I will check, make sure that my tasks are updated. So one thing that I want to mention with the with Jira is, you want to make sure that your updating the status in there Uh, it's important for kind of the project management perspective and for your own backward, like for legacy code sake, because if you're working on, for instance, the footer and uh, you explain what goes wrong with the task, what you needed the next time you have to do an update to the footer, you can go back to the JIRA task. And if it's linked correctly, you can kind of avoid those mistakes. Or if there's any if there's ever any issue with the footer, we can see who did that footer and ask them directly because it just makes it a lot easier to it's not about like accountability, it's more about quick quickly getting to the solution, right? So it's important to kind of update those tasks, make sure that everyone's on the same page. And then I sign off. And usually I sign off, I set, like close my Slack, and I don't look at it for the rest of the day. I do have a notification set that if I get mentioned a couple times, uh, it will notify me. So like if there's an emergency, someone will mention me a couple times. I can jump back on, but it doesn't happen very often. And that's it. That's my day in the life. It's nothing glamorous, but I figured it be interesting or at least important for people to understand that it is just a normal day. And uh, if you know what it looks like, it might not be as scary to dive into. Last thing here is I just want to say a, couple, a few tips, tips and tricks uh, to kind of stand out and make it so that your first you know, few weeks, few months, first year in the industry is super beneficial for you, right? I think first tip right here is stepping outside of your comfort zone. So let's say you were always a, you know, HTML, CSS, React dev, and the company that you're working on has now switched to Vue. Don't be afraid to make those kinds of shifts. It's not, it's not a good idea to be stuck in kind of your ways, especially early on in your career, because the more you kind of take on that you don't know, the faster you'll learn, and the more the, – the faster you'll grow as a developer. The The web development in general requires knowledge from a million different areas. And until you have that mindset of, hey, I'm okay with struggling a little bit here. I'm okay with learning this new new technology. It's going to be very difficult for you to progress in, in your career. Because what one company does, what one company's stack stack is, is almost never – One-to-one with another company's tech tech, no matter how you put it together, just different tech leads, different legacy code, you're always going to be learning something new. So it's, it's better to just embrace it, be okay with struggling, ask questions, watch videos, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to know it to be able to take that task. Obviously, you have to have some basis in reality, like you can't from a web developer, you can't all of a sudden take on a machine learning task unless you're a genius or something like that. Like that's probably not going to be a good idea, but if it's in the same realm, you can do it and you'll struggle, but it's okay.
1: What do you think about people that, so they'll try to learn stuff on their own time. Now, obviously that's pretty normal, especially if you code for a living and code for a hobby, let's say for example, but what do you think about if someone is, um, let's say you're working on the tech stack that just, let's just say react for the sake of just this audio, so you're just you're working with React, and they want to move over to Vue, and the company is not giving you any time to spin up in Vue. They just want you to one day be in React, and then you're switching teams to some other project, say, and you're in Vue. So you'll be basically forced to do it on your own time. Is that acceptable? Unacceptable? Like what's what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, I don't. This is a tough one, but honestly, my take is when you're a, when you're a junior developer you're probably gonna have to learn on your own time there's it, it's just gonna be it's just part of the job and it's unfortunate maybe maybe not uh, it's but it is it, it, you're gonna have to take like especially when you take on these tasks that are outside your comfort zone you're gonna have to ramp up in them in some degree and you can do that on the job right like you can learn on the job that's not an issue but for the most part your own mind in your own mindset there's gonna be this blocker where you're like Well, I can just do a little bit more and I can learn a little bit more here and I can get by a little bit faster. The first like two years or year of your job is all about that progression. You're probably not going to be getting the craziest salary. Like you're not going to be getting these six figure, high six figure ranges on your first junior developer job. That's not the reality. The idea is to get there as fast as possible. And really the only way to do that is to, again, step outside your comfort zone and put in some extra time after work. Right. This isn't a typical job that you can just usually you can just disconnect from later on in your career, four years, five years, six years down the line. That's probably a possibility. Right. Like when you're when you're an established developer working for a company and you 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 have your role set. Yeah. Maybe you can for the most part, you can disconnect every day and have that perfect work life balance. But when you're first starting out, there's just so much to learn. It's the unfortunate reality that you're probably going to have to put in that extra effort. You're going to have to break your work-life balance a little bit. I'm not saying every day. Don't do this every day, right? But like a few days a week, you might have to put in some extra time to level up your skills.
1: This kind of goes like weirdly against the image that's like shown off on Twitter in general where people are like, I've I've even seen – tweets where it's like i'm super rich and i like this is what web development has given me or this is what just development in general has given me and it's sort of like yeah but you know they you're not showing you're not showing the 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 full picture where like sure like sure like you you made a bunch of money but you could be on call all the time or whatever and it kind of goes against actually let me ask you this so, like we we've we've asked this question or we've brought up this 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 topic or this this concept on our show okay. where Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Just to let you know, everybody. I I did not make any. I don't know if anyone heard that, but Alexa let me know that I did not make any requests in the last couple minutes. <laughs> but I can look on the Alexa app in case I want to go back via the privacy settings or something like that. Just to let everybody know, AI at work. Hopefully, that person <laughs> that works on that's on call, so they can fix that. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, the, the one concept we talked about was like, like, are you a web developer or are you developing for a living kind of thing where I can't remember the exact uh, wording we use, but it's like, you know, is your identity that you are a developer that you're being a web developer or are you just doing it to make money to like fund your lifestyle? And it almost sounds like you kind of can't. You have to just be a developer 100% of the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's 100% of the time, but yeah, it's not a 50-50 balance split, in my opinion. Um, I think the reason that the salaries are so high is because there's a lot demanded from you. And you are 100% correct that a lot of people make it out to be like this perfect job when really there are a lot of – there's a lot of challenges. Like, And one of those challenges is that you have to strike that – work-life balance that works for you that's not going to be 50 50 most of the time especially when you're starting out right again as you get more senior and as you start to understand your field really well it can get to that point and you could be making that crazy salary so maybe some of those people are like probably most of those people are telling the truth but they have to go through a lot of shit to get there
1: and that's and and it gets sugarcoated for social media like everything
2: or like most things i should say yeah, exactly. It's not – nothing is perfect. Web development is not perfect in any way. But it is a re, like a real way to earn a significant amount of money. But right. expect you're going to have to work for it.
1: It's definitely like one of the bigger struggles I have because like I do a lot of stuff on my off time. And it's like I like to schedule things. But it's like if I'm in this position where I'm on call, then I don't want to schedule anything. And I actually kind of think this is where – how people fall off the map. Well, you know, if you have like a friend or something and he just like falls off the map, not that they're always developers, but it's like they fall into their role. Of whatever it is, whatever their job is, and then it's just like, well, like I better not make like in their mind, in my mind, it's like I better not make any plans ever, because what if someone calls me? What if I don't pick up the phone? What if I don't see that text message? I may as well just be available all the time. It's like, how could I go skiing? Cause like, what am I supposed to do? Have a laptop strapped, like, to, to my back? <laughs> like, what am just, I
2: supposed to do? So, again, in, in a typical developer role, you're not going to be on call all the time. Uh, especially as a junior developer. It's just not going to happen. Like, the senior architect or the senior engineer might split that responsibility with someone. Because right. the junior is not going to be able to help in this situation anyway. So, But anyway, like... The fact it's not only about the on call part. It's about that extra learning part, right? Like if you're not investing that time into learning a little bit more outside of the job, you're, it's going to be more difficult for you to get out of the comfort zone. That's the key here, right? It's not only about the on call. And I get what you're saying with the like always being anxious and worried about taking a vacation. But again, there are systems very, very um, intentional systems in place, so that when someone's out, like we had a our lead developer essentially on the entire project out for paternity leave for three months, right? And we'd never contacted them once in that time, because there was a, a he he wrote a document about all of, all of his responsibilities. He had a week of you know training other people on the job, and then you know we had emergencies happen. So the site went down. Like there are, there were stuff that happened that he could have come in and helped, but we didn't need that because there's systems in place for that. Right, right. Okay, so the, the vacation is a vacation. You shouldn't have to bring your laptop on your back to be able to go skiing. Like that's <laughs> while you're not,
1: skiing down the hill. Yeah, and if you're in your that situation.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're in a toxic work environment. That's just the yeah, like you're in a toxic work environment. You need to get out of there. You need to plow through it. Get as much as you can from it and get, a hell out, get the hell out of there as soon as possible because you're going to burn out because there should be a very clear separation between work and office and there should be – if you're on call, you're on call, deliberately on call and uh, you're either getting paid a significant amount because, because of your role or you're getting paid those hourly wages or something like that for the on call time. Okay, next tip is communicate often. This is really important. Uh for a junior developer, especially starting out, the way that people see you and the way that you get noticed in the team is by your communication. So just responding to messages, just being consistent respond responding to messages. I'm not saying respond immediately. If you're in deep work, turn off your notifications and work. But if when you get out and you have that time set for just, you know, drinking a coffee, respond to some messages respond to your JIRA tickets, respond, 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 because the more people see you, the more they'll trust you. The biggest thing that I've noticed is like, trust builds really quickly when you have a clear line of communication. It's not about how great of a developer you are. It's not about that you can do this 10 times faster. If you're consistently reporting on the issue that you're solving and you have a great like a a communication line to the to the stakeholders and that you're letting them know what's going on you're going to be trusted to do more and more really quickly ask questions and then write down answers so writing down answers can be something in a knowledge base which would be great or it can be personal in your own notebook whatever but just so that you don't have to ask questions more than twice just make sure that you write down the answers especially to the ones that you know you're going to have to ask more times
1: Oh, one other thing, too, I want to ask uh, or add there is that because you're not versed in something, obviously, you know, you don't want to keep asking the person the same question. But if you write down the answer, like you write down the question you ask and then you write down the answer, if something is close or you think is close and you might get the same answer, um, I open up with like, hey, uh, I'm not sure if this is the same answer you gave me before, like about this. But and I let them know that, like, I'm acknowledging that I might be asking the same question, but I'm so green with whatever it is that I'm not actually sure if the question's the same and that. So, I mean, I, I get told off sometimes, but um, <laughs> but it does soften the blow and at least lets them know that I'm not just being negligent and not writing down the
2: answer. It's just that I I don't know if it's the same thing. What's crazy, Matt, is that I feel like you were definitely in a toxic work environment because all your story, like I've never been told off for asking a question, not once in my entire life of any developer that I've ever talked to has ever, has I've been told that like, that's a stupid question, any negativity at all, like not even once. The only thing that I've had is like no responses. That's the only thing. That's the worst that's happened to me. There's I mean, no I've never
1: response. been in like a professional developer role in terms of like in a corporate environment, Uh but like, and some of my answers are not about the corporate environment. Some of them are about like uh like a more of a blue collar position as well. Um Like uh working with my hands and stuff, but it's like, like all these, like I've definitely been told off like in multiple, <laughs> in multiple jobs and multiple things that I, I, then I just don't, it, that I just don't give a fuck right after yeah. it's really, it's really bad. It's pretty rugged. Like it's, it's literally, there's been times where I'm like, Oh, Hey, like, I'm just making this up. It's like, hey, like, where are the brooms at? And it's like, I think I think all the staff know where the brooms are. It's like, oh, okay. well, it's not getting sweep. Then I just walk away (laughs) and then that's it. And then it becomes then it becomes a problem. You know what I mean? It's like, once it's toxic, now I'm toxic. It's not good. (laughs) uh, I had some I've had some good jobs. I've had some bad jobs, but also I've had like good jobs and good environments with like one or two bad people. It's kind of like
2: in school where you have some bad friggin' teachers, you know, whatever. Yep. That's why I always say in school or in university, bad teachers are actually teaching you for the the workplace because it's going to happen. You're going to have a bad boss. You're going to have that. Like, I've been very lucky, I want (laughs) to clarify. Like, I... I've had weird situations at work. Like I've definitely had some weird situations with clients. I've had some weird situations and I've had, I've had some confrontational moments with new employees and stuff like that. But in terms of my direct reports, my, you know, my managers, I've been very lucky in the web development industry. And now I worked in the restaurant. That was a whole different can of worms. There was a lot of yelling there and screaming. But so I don't know if that just taught me to not care about it anymore or something, but regardless, very lucky. But yeah, I, I feel like you definitely had some toxic, <laughs> toxic relationships at work. Um, and that's definitely <laughs> definitely hitting you, but uh it's not all bad. Like asking questions usually does not have an aggressive response. It either has a good response, a clear, a clear response, or no response at all, which sucks.
1: I've definitely like verbatim been told like, hey, don't bother me. In in like a work chat. And I'm just like, oh hey, like, I don't know, how do I make again I'm just making this up? It's like, oh hey, how like how do I install this? And I've asked the specialist in that area, and it's like, "Hey, don't bother me." Okay, yeah.
2: That's and I guess it it's being
1: installed incorrectly,
2: and it absolutely was. It was absolutely installed incorrectly. Right after that, they had to go out of their way to tell you that too. Like they could have just left you rest. <laughs> like it. they could have like just like <laughs> they could have just left it, but they had to be a dick. Like they had to. Be a dick. So that that's a, that's bonkers to me. Like I, <laughs> that is insane for for a, for a technical professional to do that. That means that either they're a toxic person or the environment around them is extremely toxic, and that's just how everyone treats each other, which sucks. You again, if you're in this situation, get as much out of it as you can, and get the hell out of there.
1: I will say this is like I think in all my jobs I don't think it was a toxic work environment. There was it was it's definitely like Talkic isolated people. cases that like my brain has like seared into my memory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like you know, let's say I have like ten shifts. It's like one or two of my shifts have like two minutes total of a really toxic thing, and I don't remember anything about those ten shifts, but I remember those two really friggin' weird or really toxic in in uh, engagements. So that I'm just like, well. Staying away from that person or, you know,
2: whatever. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's fire off these other tips because we're already at one hour and 20 minutes, everyone. Okay. I said I'm cutting ownership. you off for now. Nope. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Take ownership. <clears throat> this one is particularly useful for <clears throat> advancing in the company. When you first start off and you start looking at the backlog of tasks, and a backlog is usually something that's in JIRA of stuff that they want to get done, essentially stuff that they just don't have the people or they haven't assigned to anyone or whatever. It's something that the business team usually asks for and needs to be done at some point in the future sprint. If you can find a task there that you think you can do, and again, step out of your comfort zone a little bit here, you can go to your project manager, you can go to your tech lead, you can go to another developer and be like, "Hey, I want to take this task on and go through and talk to the stakeholders. So who reported that task, reach out to them, ask them for clarification on something and take that task and take it from start to finish to completion, right? Now, I'm not saying alone. I'm not saying you have to just like silo yourself and do this. I'm saying communicate as you're doing it because it shows that you're taking ownership of a task and you're doing whatever it takes to get it done. And that kind of mentality is really valuable in a development environment because a lot of times there's some developers that will just kind of sit back and wait for tasks to be assigned to them, do the task, don't talk to anyone, do the task, submit it, then Have a bunch of feedback because they weren't, they didn't clarify anything. They just did their first best foot forward, and that's it. And then they have to do a bunch of iterations and iterations without speaking into anyone. And then eventually, you know, three weeks down the line, it gets done. Now, that's going to happen. You're going to have that kind of situation happen to you. That's fine. But if you can step ahead of that a little bit and make sure that you understand the task top to bottom, and have those conversations with maybe the management team or the stakeholders, then first of all, you're branching out of just development. So you're getting noticed and you're becoming a more valuable member of the team because you're able to, without as much hand-holding and without as much uh, back and forth, get a project done and delivered. Or not even a project, sorry, a task. A project would be probably too much to ask initially. So try to think that way a little bit. Try to find that task that really helps you and then establish that process. So, you know, like you're going to be handed more, more uh, responsibilities are going to be handed more complex things down the line and embrace that again, outside of the comfort zone a little bit. Own up to mistakes. This is a big one. No one likes to admit that they're wrong. No one likes to admit that they screwed up, but you're a junior developer. You're going to drop a table or something like that. And dropping table by, by that, I mean like an SQL table, like a, a database table. You're going to accidentally write something in SQL and it's going to destroy the entire database, right? That's going to happen. I'm, there might be some other thing not as extreme, but it might happen. Like that is a very common issue <laughs> with junior developers, right? If you own up to that mistake in the stand up or whatever, the consequences are probably going to be nothing. They're going to be – it's going to be a learning example. It's going to be like, hey, we're just going to revert back to the, to the backup because this happens all the time. If you don't own up to that, if you're just like, oh, you know what? I was following this guy's recommendation and like uh, it was actually him or them or whatever. If you start pointing fingers around you at something that you clearly screwed up, that's going to look really bad right off the bat it's not a big deal to screw up I promise you it's going to happen and I promise you it's not that big of a deal okay obviously a lot of times you want to limit your screw-ups to like the development environment and the pre-prod environment but even even in production it's gonna happen like sometimes something will go down I've done it I've taken down the site like in the last three months I've taken down the site myself my own personal mistake I wrote to all the stakeholders what happened I gave them a retrospective of what happened I I owned up to it, I promise. And nothing, ha- like no negative feedback was, was put on there. People were more than happy to hear that. It's not a big deal to own to, up to your mistakes as long as you, as long as you own up to them. No negative feedback
1: until you got to me. And then I sent you a message and said, just fix it. Don't bother me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're that toxic person in our relationship. Man. I got it. It makes sense. Everything makes sense now.
1: <laughs> That's a joke, everybody. Well, let's, yeah, let's calm of course, it down. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay. Own up to your mistakes. That's a very clear one. Suggest solutions. So as a junior developer, you might be really hesitant to like put your foot forward and suggest something that you think that, you know, the seniors will obviously know. But the reality is you're learning development at a different time than they are. So for instance, there's a new project coming up that's an internal tool for like managing uh, order numbers, whatever. People need to have visibility into what order numbers are being placed at what time, a little dashboard. Everyone has been using Angular forever. Everyone on the team is big on Angular. It's okay to mention, Hey, maybe we should try react. Maybe we should try Svelte for this. It's a new framework coming out. It's a new framework coming up. It's faster. X and X and X. Talk about it. It's not, doesn't mean that they're going to accept it, but it's good to kind of get your foot in there. It's good to have those conversations. It's good to be that kind of person that is okay with suggesting something new because When it comes time to it, when you start to develop more of a rapport, when you start to develop more seniority, you're more likely going to be the one that they lean on to choose new technologies because you already know about them. You've talked about them many times. And then you can start bringing in maybe Svelte into your your work environment or React stuff that you actually like to do. If you just stay silent and conform to whatever everyone says, it's – you are like, yeah, you're gonna be stuck working at like working with older technologies, but you're also you're just not gonna be relied on as much. Establish work-life balance that works for you. Again, Matt mentioned it before: like, is it possible to have perfect 50-50 balance? Probably not. When you're first starting out, you need to put that extra effort in to try to kind of get out of the first initial role as quickly as possible, in my opinion. You want to make sure that you establish as much knowledge as you can because as you start interviewing for the more senior roles that are like high three-figure salaries, if that's your goal, the questions they're going to be asking you is what tech did you work on? What did you do? And if you didn't step outside your comfort zone, then you're probably going to be siloed into whatever tech was presented to you. But if you did and you learned and you grew and you made mistakes and you, you you went out of your way to learn more stuff, you're going to have a lot more to say in that question during the interview, right? So just think about it like that. It's, it's about the next part. It's about the next phase. It's really important to have that growth mindset in this early stage. And it sucks sometimes because, again, you might have to sacrifice some of your work life, like some of your work life balance. You might have to, you know, spend that extra three hours studying code instead of watching Netflix. But it is a part of it. Now, having said that, again, if you do that every day, if you spend eight hours or 10 hours at work and then eight hours learning code, you're going to burn out and it's going to be good for no one. You need to figure out the signals that your body's telling you when you've had too much. You need to set days when you don't have anything after five, when you don't do studying. You need to give yourself weekends. You need to give yourself holidays. You need to have that work-life balance. It's just – unfortunately, probably not going to be that 50-50 that you would want. That's all I'm saying.
1: The one thing too when you were saying like listen to your body is that's a really challenging thing for me as well is I will like dig in on something and it doesn't even matter whether it's a hobby or not. And what ends up happening to me is I will dig in and be like, nope like I'm not, you know, leaving or I'm not stopping doing this until I, you know, hit a certain level of progress or complete this task or whatever it is. Again, it could be hobby or professional or whatever. And what ends up happening is if, if I do not reach that level of progress and I do not listen to the signals of my brain or whatever is telling me, then I eventually just go, all right, I guess I just can't do this. And then every time I approach that task, I approach it like I don't care. And then I just do a horrible job. And I was like, yep, just as expected. And I move on, which is Probably not good. So don't do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it is a tricky thing, but you, it's important to learn. Like Matt said, it, it can debilitate you. Like it can bring you down.
1: Like I've been trying to learn to golf lately and, and I was like progressing like normal. And now I've lost everything I learned the whole season because I just like hit a wall did not progress at the level i wanted and this is leisurely like remember this and, and i'm not even trying to be pga tour i'm just trying to like play consistently and i like hit a wall and now i just can't do can't play basically i just i basically just can't play because i'm just useless i go up and i'm like oh well that was bad I went in the water oh well whatever take a drop oh look i messed it up again and that's like just how i and that's not good like i do that with no. everything and it's not good that's uh, a mental
2: thing. And it's golf a is a thing. very, very <laughs> mental sport and say like development can be too. Like you can get stuck on a problem and it can grind you down. It can. So that's something oh, yeah. that you have to work, you have to work on. Like I'm not saying you, Matt, I'm saying everyone out there and myself included. Like it sometimes grinds me down too. It's just one of those things where it's going to be part of it. like debugging is 50% of your job. Debugging code. Yeah. That's like in these big projects, that's something I didn't mention actually. And I should have in the uh, differences, but you're going to be doing a lot of freaking debugging (laughs) and, and it's annoying and it's frustrating and you need to be able to mentally get past that. And it is really a mental thing. And you need to be able to know when to step back and you need to be able to know when to go in. And like, that's where like, again, the reason that developers are paid so much as you move up levels is they're able to kind of balance these things. They're able to, suggest solutions, they're able to implement a feature, they're able to take ownership of something, they're able to do this kind of stuff and get through the mental barriers and finish a project. Because all of it, like it's just challenge after challenge after challenge as you go through it. Like it's almost never a smooth smooth sailing, no matter how well-prepared you are. And like, yeah, the, the top paid developers are able to like just put their head down, grind through it and answer all the questions and get through all the debugging bullshit and that's it. And that's it's important to learn that early on. I think, otherwise you're gonna have uh, it's gonna be a kind of a rude awakening. And the last thing here, last tip is time block your calendar. We already mentioned that. Where if you want to do some deep work, time block it in your calendar, and then you can actually get some work done without getting contacted constantly. To I don't know. Change a logo here, or ask what the status of a project is, even though you put it in the Jira ticket, and all the other frustrating things that can happen, and that can distract you in a non-urgent sense, I should say.
1: Sound advice, sound tips and tricks, but I think I think that concludes the episode. Unless you have it anything does. else to add, Mike.
2: It does. That's it. That's your uh, little breakdown of your first junior developer job and i hope you get it i hope uh you get through it it's not i maybe made it out to seem difficult i hope i did not scare anyone off but scared me um, off. i'm out of here that's good yeah (laughs) fantastic but it is i just i wanted to be really realistic about it and but i also want to say that you can do it 100 it's not rocket science it's not that hard it is a lot of office politics and management and stuff like that, and you can get through it.
1: All right. And with that, if you like episodes like this and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things and many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from blue, black, digital and blue, digital.com. Chris from self-made web designer and self Tim from the web hacker on the DL Ford from DL we have NineBlockMedia NineBlockMedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via GeekLifeRadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via YesWeb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. Fire Ant Season via, via FireAntSeason.com. And a new one this week, Watoto Coding. So that's Watoto Coding via WatotoCoding.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform. You're listening to this on and this outro will sign us off.
0: been listening to html all the things podcast web development här <smart noise>